Labor Day weekend is a time to honor those who work hard in a full array of occupations. Are you one of those that works hard? Then hopefully you'll enjoy your day of rest tomorrow. Many people dread Mondays and uh, the return to the work week. As Christians, we know that our work transcends the normal motivations that other people have when they go to work. We render a service unto God. It's not just about making a buck. When you work with the purpose of being a blessing to other people through your work, your work then has a greater meaning. And thus, the rescue squad, when they work hard, they know they're providing a service that may save lives. The office worker knows that if she does her work well, it benefits the company and the community. When the teller balances the transactions, then everybody is benefited because of the monotonous work that they put in. The cook hopefully delivers a safe and quality meal and uh, and helps people enjoy their time of fellowship. Even the pest control guy knows how to keep the critters away and make our homes a better place. Everybody has something to contribute to society. The Protestant work ethic kind of blankets all of the needed jobs in society with a sanctified purpose. I don't know if you know what the Protestant work ethic is, but it's something that you should know about. It's what helped build our country with so much production, and it was developed from the Scripture. Basically, it noted that every job is sacred, not just the job of the pastor, but every job is sacred when it's done unto the Lord, and every job has, is sacred when it has three goals. Number one, to work under the glory of God, whether anyone sees you or not. You work in your little space to the glory of God, and you know God sees you. Number two, that you render a needed service to the community. Work is needed. It keeps everything going. And three, that you bring home a paycheck for the family, and you take care of the needs of your own home. That's the Protestant work ethic, and it's done our country very, very well. Church work is also labor. It's labor for God. But it is labor that is often misunderstood. For spiritual work is hard to quantify, and it seems the work is never done. What pastors and evangelists and elders, and for that matter, everybody who serves the Lord does, is crucial labor. But it's often neglected. It's often lost in all the array of other responsibilities people have in life. What does spiritual labor involve? If you are a spiritual worker, and I hope all of you are to some degree, what should you expect while you labor spiritually? Today, we come to a passage that seems not all that important in the grand scheme of the church's growth as Luke is documenting it in Acts. Yet we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is profitable because it's all inspired. And I think we can learn some lessons about spiritual labor from our passage today. The passage is Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. I'll read it. Acts 9, 26 through 31. When he, that's Saul or Paul, came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Well, you read this passage with me and you see that nothing earth-shattering happens here, but I kind of like this type of a Bible passage because it presents to us a little bit of a snapshot of what spiritual life was like in the church at Jerusalem around the end of the 30s AD. It's kind of a look behind the curtain to see what was going on behind the scenes. It gives us a glimpse into the kind of spiritual work that Paul himself did prior to his missionary journeys. In fact, the main purpose of this passage is really to explain what happened to Paul after he escaped from Damascus in a basket in such a humble fashion. Do you remember that? He was back in Damascus and the Jews wanted him dead for preaching Jesus and he escaped in the basket. Where did he go next? This passage answers that question. He went to Jerusalem. Why did he go to Jerusalem? He went there to meet the apostles. So that has some significance for Paul is going to meet Peter and possibly some of the other apostles at this time. By trekking with Paul's life, we can pick up some lessons for our own life, lessons about spiritual labor. Pastors and leaders and other kinds of spiritual workers face many different realities. If you understand these realities, it'll help you be a better spiritual worker. And so there are six realities we're going to look at in these verses, six realities that spiritual workers face in their labor for Christ. I'll unfold them for you one at a time as we go through it. Look at verse 26 again. The first reality that spiritual laborers face and that you will face at times, we might call misunderstanding misunderstanding. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Now, we have to review the context a bit, don't we? The apostles maintained their witness there in Jerusalem, though many of the disciples had fled the persecution uh, in Jerusalem. Now, evidently, some of those disciples had meandered back to Jerusalem uh, if the persecutions were waning. They found it easier for them to return to their homes in Jerusalem. And so we see many disciples back with the apostles in Jerusalem. According to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18, this happens some three years after Saul, who's also called Paul, had been ravaging the church in Jerusalem. Evidently, the Christians in Jerusalem either had not heard of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, or if they heard it, They didn't believe it. The three years' lapse of time makes their reticence to meet Paul even more amazing. It shows just how badly Saul had hurt the church of Jesus. The Christians in Jerusalem were not bound to forget Saul. Maybe they named him Hurricane Saul. 
for he left memorable damage in his wake. And since they had no experience with the other kind of a Saul, they only knew of Saul the persecutor, they held this giant misconception about him. Make no mistake about it, it was a misconception that Saul well deserved. It is not easy and it should not be easy for a man to overturn a terrible reputation that he has built through the years. But that was the steep hill that Saul had to climb. And so Saul was in Jerusalem seeking audience with at least some of the apostles. Now, if we put some of the scriptures together, it's possible that Saul was staying with his sister in Jerusalem before the apostles received him because in Acts 23 and verse 16, it shows that she had a home in Jerusalem. But the apostles didn't welcome them into their homes. They were afraid of him. They deflected the attempts that Saul was making to meet with them. In fact, that verb trying there, that he was trying to meet them, is in the imperfect tense in Greek, and it shows that Saul didn't just have one try or two tries. He was repeatedly trying to get a connection where he could meet with them. It shows that it wasn't easy to get a meeting with the apostles. They, they were guarded. They were protected from the, the evil that others might want to do to them. They had a security ministry that guarded their lives. He was trying to meet, he just wasn't being successful due to this lingering misconception. Now, sometimes God changes our lives, and we know that, but we have a hard time that God would change someone else's life, particularly when they've been so opposed to Christianity, right? But God does change lives. Now, they probably just didn't want to be naive. They probably thought this is the kind of trickery that the Jewish leadership might have been engaged in. Maybe they thought it was a setup. Maybe they thought that if Saul had truly been converted, why did he wait three years to come to Jerusalem? Why hadn't he come sooner? Why hadn't more stepped forward to vouch for him if this was true? Dr. MacArthur adds this insight. He comments, Saul must have seemed to them to be the quintessential wolf in sheep's clothing, now trying to destroy from within what he had previously tried to destroy from without. They didn't want to be fools, you see. Misunderstanding is something that pastors... And spiritual workers will face at some time in their work. They know what their own motives are, but no one else can read the heart, and so they know that their motives will be judged wrongly at times. They know what they're trying to do, but they know that other people often are suspicious of what they're trying to do. This is especially true if the people that are suspicious have been burned by previous spiritual leaders in a previous church. And let's face it, More and more, Hollywood is doing everything that it can on the TV screen and in the movies to portray a very bad example of pastors. I have a hard time finding any movie that sets pastors as knowledgeable and good kind of people. That is on purpose. They're trying to tear down people's confidence in spiritual workers. There's a satanic motive in that. And sometimes when you go out and you want to evangelize or you're trying to evangelize extended family members, and they gossip about you and label you and peg you as a hater of others, and you have a hard time making any progress because of misunderstanding. You have stood for righteousness in your job, but you are called unloving. You advance the Word of God in, in some venue, but people say, oh, he's just trying to advance his own name, and so people misunderstand. Unfortunately, people don't usually gather all the facts before making their rather firm judgments about others, and that is a difficulty that has to be patiently overcome. 
Jumping to conclusions is one of the worst things that can happen to the unity of brothers and sisters in the church. Please don't do it. Please don't jump to conclusions about other people's motives. Right now, you might hold a misconception about a leader in the church. You should give your brother the benefit of the doubt. If you're faced with others who misunderstand you, you will understand why it's so important to give other people the benefit of the doubt. Do what Saul did here. He patiently and persistently worked until others knew who he was, and that's what we need to do as well. Be patient, be persistent until they understand exactly who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. The second reality that spiritual workers face is the need for assistance, and that's in verse 27 if you look at it. Verse 27, it says, But Barnabas took hold of him, that's Saul, and brought him to the apostles and described to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that Jesus had talked to Saul and how at Damascus Saul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So what we have here is Barnabas to the rescue. Saul needed help in his spiritual work. He needed to make a connection with the other apostles. Why? For the sake of unity with the broader church. After all, Saul was called as an apostle also, right? Well, Barnabas steps in and fills the need. He sees the lack of communication. He sees the void. He sees the bridge that needs to be gapped, and he, he bridges that gap. Now, we've seen Barnabas before in the record in Acts. He was introduced to us back in chapter 4 and verse 36, and he was called there the son of encouragement. Everywhere we see this guy as a leader, he's bringing people together, and he's encouraging others in their spiritual work. And unlike Ananias, who received a vision to go talk to Saul, Barnabas did not. He didn't get a vision. He just figured it out somehow. He learned of the situation, and he knew that he would be able to talk to the apostles, that the apostles would trust him, and that he could convince them that Saul was indeed the real deal. So Barnabas acts as a mediator, and he brings the apostles together with Saul. Sometimes spiritual leaders need help because they're stuck. They need someone else to see that they're stuck. And rather than sit back and criticize, step forward and solve the problem. To think that pastors always have a magic wand that they can wave over every conflict or disagreement in the church to solve all problems is to misunderstand the levels of difficulty in their work. God often leaves leaders in unsolvable dilemmas, meaning you can't please everybody. Why? Because he wants other gifted men or women to rise up and use their insights and their gifts to help the church, to help solve the problem. Leaders have their limitations. Some of you are supposed to help our leaders overcome their limitations by coming alongside them and helping them and their ministry to advance. Barnabas did that. Barnabas dealt with the problem by using truth. Barnabas explained to the apostles two things. First, Saul had seen the Lord Jesus on the road. He'd seen the resurrected Christ. And Jesus even took time to have a conversation with him on the road. That must mean something, right? Second, Saul had proven the genuineness of his conversion by immediately getting up in Damascus and beginning preaching the gospel. 
The result of Barnabas' assistance was that Saul was fully accepted into the fellowship of the apostles. What a wonderful thing Barnabas did for the greater church. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 18, it mentions that Paul had exerted, I'm sorry, he had had an extended private time with the other great apostle named Peter. He got to stay with Peter for 15 days. Imagine that. Peter and Paul together working together. And there are all kinds of crazy scholars in the modern times that like to say that Peter and Paul had a hard time getting along and that there's really two brands of Christianity found in the New Testament. One is a Peter brand and the other is a Paul brand. And you've even had heresies throughout church history where they say, we accept Paul's letters as really from God, but not the more Jewish letters like those from Peter and James and Matthew. How foolish that is. Here we see the Holy Spirit brought them together and they spent time together and they trusted each other. In fact, in Galatians 1, it says they extended to each other the right hand of fellowship. Peter being given the right by Jesus to go to the Jews and be the apostle to the Jews and Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, thank God for men like Barnabas for assistance and problem solvers in the church. Again, I say pastors don't always have a solution, nor do the deacon boards. Barnabas understood why the apostles were afraid. He understood also who Saul was. He saw both sides of the issue. He did not come up with some half-baked, half-measure. He solved the problem directly for both sides. And some of you may be put in a situation like that, where your knowledge or your insights or your past experiences will solve a problem. Before you volunteer to solve a problem, though, make sure, like Barnabas, you understand both sides of the problem well and don't assume that you do. But when you do, you just may be the answer to some leader's prayer. Third, the third reality that spiritual workers face, and that is, it's a little bit nicer here, that's opportunities. Verse 28. And he, Saul, was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Well, Saul got to enjoy the fellowship with the apostles. Because of Barnabas' help, he was now part of a team of leaders, and this must have felt good to him. This was probably rewarding. He got to converse with them. Imagine Paul getting to just talk with them and ask them, What was it like to be with the Lord Jesus those three and a half years? What did you learn? What did he teach? Paul didn't get that experience. Now he's relating to the apostles who did. Now verse 28 indicates that he was able to move about freely there in Jerusalem preaching. Some have criticized verse 28, claiming that it paints a very different picture than that of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 22, which notes that Saul was still, quote, unknown to the churches in Judea. Hmm, that's interesting. But that Galatians note likely refers to the local churches in the countryside outside of Jerusalem. Inside of Jerusalem, Paul was uninhibited and evidently he was well known. He clearly had the approval of the other apostles and that is the same picture we get in the letter to Galatians. So they're harmonized well, I think. Please note how good it is when God's workers are not encumbered with unnecessary restraints, but they are unleashed to do what their giftedness and their calling demands of them to do. I know that I've been through a number of seasons here in Hope Bible Church where I have 
have found it much easier to do the work that God has called me to do, and at other times was encumbered with many things that really were not related to my calling. But spiritual workers should be unhindered. They should be unleashed to take advantage of the opportunities that God is giving them to minister and serve. Great, wide open doors of opportunity are somewhat rare in ministry. And those surrounding the workers who've been given those opportunities must be aware when God is opening the doors and help them to walk through those doors of opportunity. They should not be jealous of other workers. They should not place unnecessary burdens on them, but they should let them move. They should let them go. They should let them do what the Lord has called them to do. Well, here Saul does that. He did what he does well. He spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was out there preaching. He was out there persuading. You know, as we continue reading in the book of Acts, we will see that Paul had an ever-expanding audience until the time of his death. In other words, he was a greyhound that just needed to be released to go do what Christ had called him to do. He wasn't to be held back. God raises up spiritual workers because he wants spiritual work done. So he raises up leaders so that the work that God wants done gets done. And you need to recognize that about them. The reason why they're emerging as leaders is God wants a work done through them. This is what it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So one man gets called to Africa. Another man gets called to Asia. Another to America. There's a giant ocean out there, a fish that God wants us fishing for, right? No one needs to step on any other man's assignment from the Lord. The Lord Jesus gave me this pulpit. This is what I was called to. Uh, For years, I wasn't so sure he was really giving it to me. It took me a lot of wrestling with the will of God in my life because the progress of this church was so slow in those early years. But this is my ministry. This is what God gave to me. And he wants me standing here as long as he gives me the energy and the strength to preach. God will give you a ministry as well. He will carve it out for you. Uh, You never need to take another man's ministry. You need to pray and ask God, what is my ministry? What are you calling me to? And then follow obediently as he opens up that ministry for you. You know, it was John the Baptist who said, no man can be given a ministry unless it's given to him from heaven. Well, that's what Paul was being given right here. I would say to you, pastors do get opportunities for the word of God to spread. Pastors get those opportunities. When they do, you should be happy for them. This is what they have lived their life for. This is what they have sacrificed for. This is what they have prayed for. It's what they were called by God to do. It's what burns in their heart and their mind to accomplish. Their opportunities are the entire church's opportunity. The church should recognize that. Get behind their leaders and help them be unleashed to do the work they were called to do. It's all done for the fame and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, after all, is it not? The fourth reality that spiritual workers face is opposition and danger, and that's in verse 29, opposition and danger. Well, we've talked about this a lot already, haven't we? In the book of Acts, we've seen persecution, but here it is again. And he, that Saul, was talking and arguing. I love that. He was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. 
but they were attempting to put him to death. If you think evangelism and persuading other people to become Christians is easy, take a look at that. He was talking and arguing. Man, it took a lot of persuading, right? Now, notice how things can change on a dime. One moment he has great opportunities. The next moment they're seeking to kill him. Why? Well, because the days in which we live, brothers and sisters, are evil days. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16 says, make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. You don't know when you're going to get that opportunity again. When I was younger, I kept putting some things off thinking I'll get around to doing that. You don't know when you're going to get around to doing it. You don't know if that opportunity will be there in the future. Make the most of every opportunity you have. Talking and arguing, arguing and not in the sense of getting angry and red in the face arguing, but arguing in the sense of being persuasive from the Word of God. Talking and arguing for Christ is needed, but eventually it will land you in trouble. 1 Peter chapter 4 and 11 says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the very utterances of God. When you are given a gift to speak, whether it's exhortation or whether it is preaching or whether it is teaching and you're put in a situation and you've been given a great opportunity like Saul has, you're to use that speaking gift. You're to, you're to speak it. You're to use it to the fullest and not bury it. But when you do, you should know it will land you in trouble. People will be opposed to what you're doing. That's part of spiritual labor that comes with the territory. A great deal of our service is talking. A great deal of our service is speaking. It's changing the minds of people by carefully crafted words. When you speak, speak as it were the utterances or literally that, that word there in 1 Peter 4.11 is oracles of God. Don't just be passing on your own opinion. Hey, I have some spiritual advice for you. Forget that. Give biblical teaching. Give biblical principles. Give biblical advice. Make sure your speaking gift is honed by true knowledge of the Lord and a correct interpretation of Scripture. And speak it with seriousness. Seriousness of purpose. Handle God's Word accurately, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Let your ministry with the Word of God have excellence to it. Don't be glib. Don't be too free with your thought. Don't wrangle about words which is useless, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But all of this speaking invites hostility. Some of you keep your mouth shut because you know it will invite hostility and you're coward still. When you speak up, the evil spirits hate that. And the unbelievers are ruled by evil spirits though they don't know it. And they will work in the sons of disobedience as they're called in Ephesians 2 to move against you and to make it hard for you. Why? Because you're starting to make an impact through talking about the Word of God as a spiritual worker. I think the more your ministry is that of the Word of God, the more you're called to minister to the Word of God to people, the more you will have a target on your back. So you need to pray for spiritual workers and undergird them. Here they are protecting them from plots and protecting them from, from danger. And you can see that. That's coming next. They're attempting to kill him, and they're going to protect him. Well, we pastors sometimes need to be protected. Sometimes our reputation is slandered out there, and we have no way of 
No way of knowing who is saying what. And you have to protect that reputation. Sometimes somebody has stepped up to do leadership and you see them get attacked and you see them get discouraged and intimidated and you need to stand up for them and you need to get in there with them and realize this isn't a coincidence. This is happening because they're starting to make a difference in their ministry. Ultimately, the spiritual design by the the enemy is to shut them up, right? You have no idea how hard it is to continue to preach the Word of God when people are always going to find something to speak against you, something to lie about. You have no idea how hard that is. And when you are given that opportunity and someone speaks against you, maybe, maybe then you'll begin to understand and you should speak up for others and fill that gap and and, and be brothers as soldiers that stand shoulder to shoulder and realize we're all in this battle together. Don't just say, well, you know, they're attacking him. They're not attacking me. And when we hear one of our evangelical brothers who's a good preacher indeed, not talking about somebody's fly-by-night people, but they're good brothers and they're attacked, we shouldn't say, well, the media is doing their job. We should rush to defend them because most of them are lying about these preachers. Do all you can to pray for them and help them and guard them, uphold those given opportunities. We're all servants of the word and we'll all be attacked ultimately. The fifth reality that spiritual workers face is redirection. Redirection and change. Verse 30, look at it. But when the brethren learned of it, that is the plot to kill Saul, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. That's not because they were sick and tired of Saul's preaching, guys. That's because they loved the man. They recognized the giftedness in the man, and they wanted to protect the man. Saul was now being directed by the brethren. This wasn't his choice. There were brethren who cared for him. They wanted to preserve his life. They were his security detail. It was not Paul's design to go back to his hometown of Tarsus. He had wonderful opportunities there in Jerusalem, but they were persecuting him. And that persecution made it hard for him to stay. And indeed, his life and maybe those of others would be in danger. And so the brethren knew. They knew they needed to save his life to fight another day. Saul was still young. Saul was very gifted. They could tell he was not your average leader. He was called of the Lord. He had much ministry out in front of him. They could tell. And sometimes believers need to be shrewd as a serpent, right? Even while we maintain our innocence as a what? A dove, right? Jesus said that. We deal with the enemies of Christ mounting in the political arena. We need to be aware of what they're doing to try to shut us down. We have to be aware when that's happening. We have to speak against it. We have to be aware when someone in the workplace has an unjust, un-American rule trying to shut Christians up. We need to be shrewd when those things happen and do what we can do to prevent it and also to protect the workers of the Lord, right? All the time, people are getting away with things in our country that are not lawful against Christianity. We need to be aware. We need to be alert. We need to know what's going on and be shrewd. Well, these people were aware. They saw the plot of evil on the part of the Jewish leaders. They knew these Hellenistic Jews were hotheads. They knew what they would do to Saul because they already saw it when it happened to Stephen, right? 
So they said, Saul, we're not even giving you a choice. Come on down to Caesarea. Why Caesarea? That's the port city that was built on the Mediterranean, and it would be the quickest way to get him into what's modern-day Turkey into where Tarsus was. And Tarsus was hopefully a place that Saul would be able to be without being persecuted because it was his hometown. At least that was their thinking. Well, when Saul next appears in the narrative in the book of Acts, guess where he will be? He will still be in Tarsus, according to chapter 11 and verse 25. And that will be some 10 years later. Theologians like to call these the 10 silent years of Paul. Although it's very hard for me to think of Paul having 10 silent years. He did something, we just don't know what he did. This was a time of change for Paul, and change is hard. But when you're in ministry and you're in spiritual work, change is something that you may have to face. God knows what he is doing. He moves one worker over here, and he moves another worker over there. And God knows what he's doing when he moves them around. God is sovereign, and his providential hand guides his servants where he wants them to go. I look out in the congregation, I see men who are here that didn't originally plan to be here. And yet they're here by the providential hand of God because God has work for them to do. I think of other men that I would have clung to their ankles and not wanted them to leave our church. And now they're long gone. And God, in some cases, has used them greatly in other venues to serve him because God is the one who moves his workers around in his own kingdom. Yes? Even this protective care of the brethren was all the hand of God saving him for another day, allowing him 10 more years of maturation so that when he started his first missionary journey, he was able to handle the questions and the opposition even better than he had before. Yes, change often happens in the lives of God's servants. If we believe God is sovereign, we leave all of our ministry plans open before the Lord, and we always say, if the Lord wills, I will live and I will do this, or I will do that. God directs his servants. God will direct you too. God may direct you to a different ministry inside this church. You need to be open to that. Uh, You may be a current leader in one area, and God could use you better in another area. You need to be open to that. Now, I know I'm stretching the application a little bit here, because I don't expect persecution will break out in this church against you. But for whatever the reason may be, the providential hand of God may guide you. Respond by listening to the leading of God and make sure it is God who is leading you to your new location and not your desire to avoid what is difficult and to have more comfort for yourself. Often people say it must be the will of God. Why? Because it's easier. That doesn't make it the will of God. Sixth and last, spiritual workers experience what we all want to experience, and that's in verse 31. Look at verse 31. This is a happy verse. This is a jump up and down, yay, finally we got to this place kind of verse. It is where all spiritual workers want to be, and that is they get to experience expanding fruit, expanding fruit. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, 
that is the church, continued to increase. Wow, here we have the fruit of the labor. And not just Saul's labor, but the labor of all of the leaders and all of the workers from Jerusalem into Samaria, into Damascus, all throughout that first decade, Christianity was in the world, the 30s AD. Remember the Lord crucified somewhere around 30 AD, and now we're somewhere around 40 AD in the book of Acts. Really, this verse serves as a summary of all that has transpired in chapters 7, 8, and 9 in the book of Acts. It's similar to the summary statement given in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 of all that had happened in Jerusalem. And it's heartwarming to read this. Everybody who loves the church, everybody whose heart beats for the growth and the health of the church loves verses like this. This is why we labor. This is why we serve. This is why we pray to see something like verse 31 happen around us. It's a great thing. Now, usually the New Testament would use the term church ecclesia to refer to one church, such as the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or the church here or there. But here it's being used in the more universal sense over the broad geographical area. It says the church, meaning that all those local churches recognized they were all part of just one church, right? Yes, they were in different geographical areas. Yes, they had their local church, but they were part of the greater church. They were part of the whole church. We call that the what? The universal church, right? The early creeds of Christianity used to say, I believe in the Catholic church. That's with a small c. Catholic means universal, not Roman Catholic. It means we believe in that one church where all believers are meeting together in different locales. Here, the different locations of the church are mentioned, Judea. So in other words, in all the surrounding region around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, this is what was happening in the church then. And then Galilee is mentioned. Oh, I'm so happy Galilee was mentioned. You know, Luke in the book of Acts has said nothing about Galilee and the expansion of the gospel there, but wasn't it our Lord Jesus who spent most of his ministry in Galilee? And haven't you ever wondered all of these little towns and villages that the Lord Jesus preached at, did they ever like eventually get the gospel? And here you have a hint because it says there were churches where? In Galilee. So maybe there was a church in Cana of Galilee. Maybe there was one in Nazareth. Oh, well, that would have been great. Jesus' hometown, right? Maybe in Capernaum. Maybe in some of those towns where Jesus pronounced a curse. And then, of course, Samaria is mentioned as well. And that's the connection back to all we learned in chapter 8 and Philip, the evangelist's ministry, along with the apostles. You might say this verse serves as a little report card. You remember getting a report card, don't you? How have you done this past quarter or this past semester? You hope you wouldn't see too many C's and D's. You'd hopefully see more A's and B's, right? That's what you're hoping for. Well, this is a report card. How has the progress been? Let's go back to say, what did the teacher want his church to do? Well, let's roll it all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, right before the Lord ascended, and he said, To his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth, right? Well, how's that going? Report card time. The church in Judea and Samaria are mentioned here. Of course, Jerusalem was mentioned in the earlier chapters. We haven't got to the remotest part of the earth yet. 
at this point in the book of Acts. But nevertheless, the report card is good. The church was doing well. Yay! That's great. Just a reminder to everyone, in case you had a Roman Catholic background and you scratch your head, the church did not begin in Rome. It began in Jerusalem, and you could see by this point in time, 10 years into existence, there was no church in Rome that we know of by this point in time, but there were plenty of churches elsewhere. It's not, it's not the bishop of Rome that leads the church. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father who leads his church. So here we are, some eight to ten years into church history, and Dr. Luke presents five attributes, or you might call them experiences, of the church at this time. And I'll run through these five very quickly. First, it says they enjoyed peace. Yes, peace is something to enjoy. If you're the kind of person that doesn't enjoy peace, we don't want you in the church. Dr. MacArthur notes this, with Saul the firebrand gone from the scene, both as the persecutor of the church and the chief target of the Christ-haters, things quieted down in Palestine. (laughs) Trouble went everywhere with this guy, Paul. The next outbreak of persecution won't be until chapter 12, and that reveals a little bit of a misconception that people think that the early church for the first 300 years was constantly persecuted, not in an official capacity. No, it was not. Some people think, oh, it's going to be so much better for the church when the American church starts to get persecuted. Um, I wouldn't jump to conclusions about that. The church suffered great times of immaturity during times of persecution. I would never, ever root for persecution for my brethren, and I would never vote for someone that makes it clear they're going to start persecuting the church when we take our stand against homosexuals. Keep that in your mind, because that's very important, because this country is moving more and more towards that, and there is one party in particular that is moving towards persecuting Christians directly, and if that starts to happen, I will not be silent about that. Because anyone that attacks the church of God, we're going to attack publicly as well. We must stand together, whatever your political background is. We, must, we don't have to like any of the political parties, but we do have to speak against those that are going to move against the church, and some will. I thank God for our time of peace right now. We need to take full advantage of it, and we're not. There's so much more we could be doing, we could be doing brethren. Second, the church was being built up. Don't we talk about that in church all the time? Hey, let's build each other up, we'll say, right? Edification. Oiko domeo, build one another up. That's what we want to see. People that come in to gossip around the edges of the church or to, to talk about all the weaknesses of the leaders or to gripe and grumble, they don't build up. And by the way, this isn't just building up your own local church. This is having concern For other churches, why do we have a Gamma, a Grace, Advance, Mid-Atlantic? Because we're concerned about other churches, not just our own. Why should you support Grace, Advance, Mid-Atlantic? Because we're concerned about other churches, not just our own. Because Christ is concerned about other churches, particularly the gospel-preaching ones, right? Particularly the ones that believe in the full sufficiency and power of the Bible, right? That's why we have a conference. That's why you should support that conference. That's why you should understand when the leaders are involved in building up 
Grace Bible Church in Virginia or Grace Community Church in, in, um, in Delaware. Why are we concerned about those churches? Because they're our brothers and sisters. Because we want them to grow too. We want them to be built up too. Amen? Amen. That's what we want. Paul will show concern for the Ephesians church later in Acts 20 and verse 32. When he left the elders there, he said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, same word, to build you up. That's right. Give them the word, build the churches up. I hate it when churches are torn down. When churches are weak, they don't just need us to, to yell at them and, and, and give them criticism. We need solutions for them. We need to find the leaders of those churches and teach them better and bring them to conferences where they can learn the word better so they'll take it back to their church and their church will be built up. We're not against churches, right? We're for churches. That is all true churches. We're not for the bad churches. We're not for the churches that preach a false gospel. They're not true church. But any church that preaches the true gospel and baptizes their own and celebrates the Lord's Supper, that's the definition of a true church. They preach the gospel. They keep the ordinances. They love one another. You have a church, right? Well, they may do many things wrongly, but they're still a church that needs to be built up. Third, these early churches went on in the fear of the Lord. That's good. That shows their worship was filled with reverence. That means that they understood they were to fear God. And even as a believer, you should fear God, yes? Because you should know that if you take God lightly and you don't obey His commands, He'll find a way to chasten you. And chastening hurts. And you should fear that. Even though all your sins are forgiven and there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1, you should live in the fear of God. These churches did. Proverbs 23, 17 exhorts believers, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And fourth, it says they went on in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That term, comfort, is so hard to translate. Parakletos. It's used in so many places in the New Testament. Its broader meaning is assistance or help, a very close and intimate kind of a help. In other words, all that the churches were doing, all of this increase we see in the churches and the peace that they enjoyed was because of the assistance and the help and the power and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And fifth and last, it says they continue to increase. Please do not miss that note. That is Luke telling you that they were counting the members of their churches and they were growing numerically, and that that is good. I hope that we're past the stage that we felt we were in a few years ago where people were asking, why should we grow? Why should we grow? Because we're a church of Jesus Christ, and he wants his church to grow. Just because some people are growing their church with wrong motives and wrong methods doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, we want to be biblical. We don't want to grow. That is so silly. That is so misreading the book of Acts. Everywhere it talks about the expanding nature of the church and the numerical growth of the church. That is a good thing to work for. I hope you work for it. That's what we want to see. No, there are times where the numerical growth won't happen. But overall, that's what's been happening for two years. God has been enlarging the church from one church of 120 people in Jerusalem to a church of who knows how many tens of millions in the church in the world today. 
And that's what we're working for, an ever-increasing congregation, an ever-increasing number of churches, an ever-increasing universal church. Why did they grow? It doesn't say, but we could surmise they grew because they were enthusiastic for evangelism. They grew because when they were persecuted, it didn't let them stop speaking about God. They grew because they let gifted men go do the thing that they were gifted at. They grew because they obeyed Christ's commission to make disciples of all the nations. God was multiplying his church. God was numerically adding to his church. And again, I say, that is a good thing. That is the fruit of the labor for which we work hard, to see God add numbers to his church, to see God change lives, to see God start more churches, to see God have something in the world that will outlast our own lives. That's tasting the fruit of labor. And yes, spiritual laborers at all levels get to taste the fruit of their labor. Isn't that indeed what Paul said? And I'll close with this. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. If you labor for the Lord, you ought to taste of the goodness of the harvest of the fruit that you have worked so hard to attain. And may God bless you as a spiritual worker and may God increase your heart for spiritual service because of what we've learned here today. Father in heaven... Thank you for these truths that came along in the text that we could glean and pull out. Thank you that we as brothers and sisters may sit around your table and worship and fellowship with you at this time. And we look forward to it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.